Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. My name is Alan. I love my wife, Catherine. I have two girls. That's my story. I love Jesus. Um, Now I want to tell you what I'm here to say. And uh, you're in this journey together exploring your cultural values as a house, the things that make the garden the garden, the reason that your heart is compelled to join this family on the journey that it's on. And uh, your current value, the value that they've asked me to speak into, is your value of living an empowered life, living a lifestyle empowered by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, living in His presence, living in His brilliance, and living in his innocence in your city, living in a way that lives out your influence and your story 
in the context of the world around you. And I sensed as I was praying and asking Jesus, you know, what do you want to say uh, before we get to what we're going to look at together today? I felt him say Isaiah 54 verses 3 and 4, you know, stretch your tent picks because you're about to stretch out to the right and to the left. God is about to give you geographical locations and territory. You're about to begin um, to gather his community, but also to scatter in that sense. And God is opening up places to the east and to the west of where you are, where his grace is coming upon you and you're about to enlarge as a community in ways that are uh, writing the story of the community at large. I see an upsurge in compassion among you. Get ready for a compassion explosion where people in there, it won't necessarily be structured and it won't necessarily be street, uh, strategic, but it will be spontaneous. People here whose hearts God suddenly moves upon and hearts are stirred and they begin to do what they can. They start chatting to strangers in a train or a bus or whatever, but there's this spontaneous movement of compassion. I see the Father beginning to move in your educational structures of your city. I actually see a reordering of education in your city. You're going to see some changes in governance. I don't know how education works in this city. But you're going to see some changes in the way that the Board of Education operate in this city and some changes there in personnel and that as God begins reordering education in the city. And you as a church have a role. You don't just meet in a school. You're called to schools. You're called to serve schools. And the people who sit here tomorrow at this time are every bit as important to Jesus as the people who sit here today at this time. And you have a challenge and an invitation the Father sets before you to get involved and step into the story of education. Gone are the days when the churches use the school to host their services. The days are opening when the churches partner with schools to transform the destiny of children in this community so that they grow up and no child is hungry, so that they grow up and no child is anxious, so that they grow up and dysfunction is a bygone era in the community because there was a church that existed in the community that arose in compassion and began to demonstrate the kingdom with power. And so there's invitation to you in the realm of education that the Father wants to open to you. This is what it means to stretch your tent curtains, to open them wide, to allow others in. And there's probably a few other things that we'll pick up as we go. And just the awareness that what God is doing in you is so beautiful and it's so much bigger than you. And that's a little uncomfortable. And so if you, if you want a life of comfort, I suggest you follow another God. But if you want a life that's meaningful, then Jesus is your man, right? He's the one that you want to follow. If you want someone who's going to make your life better and safer, that's not Jesus. But if you want someone who's going to give purpose and hope and direction for your days, uh, I can recommend my friend, King Jesus. He's beautiful in every way. All right, so I hadn't planned. All of that's for free. (laughs) It isn't actually what I want to talk about today. If you have a Bible with you, uh, I'm going to actually give a talk that I gave yesterday morning. So, uh, Exodus chapter 31. We're going to breeze through it as quickly as we can. Exodus 31, verses 1 to 5. You might want to uh, just put a finger in there. And then our main text is going to be Romans 12 together. I'm going to talk about living an empowered lifestyle in our everyday ordinary, in the place where we spend most of our times and most of our life. I want to talk about how do you recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit and what it is that He's designed you to do in your workplace. 
And uh, the empowered lifestyle is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is not us mustering our own strength. Uh, this is not Oprah, you know, if I believe it, I can do it. This is a power from another world. This is the Holy Spirit resting on us and moving us and releasing us. And the first mention of the Holy Spirit uh, filling someone in the Bible is Exodus 31. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. And the first mention of the Holy Spirit filling someone in the Bible is someone in their workplace. There are workplaces were designed to be a thin place. They were designed to be the place where we experience God's presence the most. That our workplaces are not places of divine absence, but places of divine presence. That when you go to work in the morning, you don't take God to work with you. He's already at work saying, hey, I'm so glad you showed up today. I have some fun on the agenda. I want you to discover who you are, and I want you to discover who I am in this place. And together, let's begin to shape this. And so uh, Bezalel is this guy. He's filled with the Spirit to do his job well filled with the Holy Spirit to do his job well. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to pray. We're going to dive right in. Are you good? We've got a little time, so I want to make sure we get through as much as we can. Holy Spirit, we love you. You are my best friend. You're my greatest joy, my deepest treasure. Thank you for what you're doing in India. Thank you today. You're going to do remarkable things in the world. Thank you today. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, and hearts will be open to you all across the globe. Thank you for the church in China and how beautiful she is to you. And in India and in Europe, thank you for the church in the U.S. and for all that you're pouring out on your church in these days. Thank you for the privilege of being part of a community of lovers of you who desire you and Jesus. Jesus, we exalt you in this place. I pray, inspire my speech today, Holy Spirit. Inscribe hope in hearts today. Inscribe hope in workplaces today. Begin to release in us the story that we were ever designed to carry. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would grace us in our families today to live out your beauty in our communities. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, Romans 12. Let me give you a little bit of the backdrop. Romans 11, actually, verse 33. Paul has been writing to this church that's in the cultural epicenter of the known world at that time. Whatever happened there began to infiltrate all of culture. And he's been writing to them. He's been explaining how God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself, how he's bringing racial reconciliation, how he's bringing social reconciliation, how through the gospel he's bringing redemption to all things everywhere. And as he's beginning to explain that, he just begins to worship. He begins to open his heart. It's like he can't contain it any longer. And we get to Romans 11, 33, and it says, All the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. I looked that up in the Greek. All things means all things. For from him and through him and for him are all things, not just religious things, but all things. That is, the, everything everywhere belongs 
to him. There's not a city that doesn't belong to him. There's not an industry that doesn't belong to him. There's not a community that doesn't belong to him. There's not a university that doesn't belong to him. Everything, everywhere belongs to him. And God's mercy is expansive for everything. And so Paul writes then in chapter 12, verse 1, I know that you know that in the Bible when it was written, we didn't have chapters and verses. This would have just flowed together. So he says, so therefore, in view of this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, this is God's expansive mercy, God's mercy, Paul's view of mercy is bigger than our view of mercy. Paul has a view of mercy that's big enough for architecture that's big enough for engineering, it's a mercy that's big enough for all things, it's big enough for social justice and for dentistry, it's big enough for botany, it's big enough for biology, it's big enough for science, it's big enough for family, it's this incomprehensive mercy of God. And he says, in view of God's mercy, here's what I want you to do, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is, your holy, this is holy and pleasing to God and is your true and spiritual or proper worship. He says, in view of God's mercy, take your ordinary everyday life. I love how Eugene Peterson phrases this in the message. He says, take your ordinary everyday life, your eating, sleeping, walking around life, and present it to God as an offering. You know, we look for God to break in and do something really dynamic, but actually an empowered life happens in the most mundane places. God shows up always in the mundane. I love Jesus, right? I love Jesus. <laughs> He's just so wonderful. But I love that he rose from the dead, right? First person in history ever to rise from the dead and stay risen. Stunning in every way. Rises from the dead. I wonder what you would do if all power and all authority was given to you. I wonder what you would do next. This is what Jesus does. He gets his friends, he gets some fish, and he makes breakfast on the beach. <laughs> like you got all power. You could do anything, right? you got Wonder Woman, Iron Man, all of that combined. And he cooks fish on a beach with some friends. Because we search for God in the supernatural, but he meets us in the mundane. He meets us in the mundane. He says, hey, come, bring your offering. Bring your everyday, ordinary life. If you want to change culture, it starts in the small corners. It starts in the moments. It starts in the mundane. And it starts in places that we often don't feel in any way reflect the kingdom. It's where our story is actually lived that the Holy Spirit's power is most needed. And where our story is actually lived is in our jobs. Right. And there's some people on the planet who get that their job is connected to God's goodness and His glory. When they do their job well, they recognize the connection with God. Ironically, they're the most overpaid people on the planet, and it's sports personalities, right? Sports stars, athletes. Do you ever, you have this guy in your culture, um, Tim Tebow. He's a, I don't know what you call this sport. I'm going to make up a name for it. Um, you call it football, right? But like... <laughs> like the clues in the name, foot, ball. <laughs> right? this, this is not your foot. I don't know how to explain this to you. I've come from Ireland to tell you in America, this is not your foot. Right? <laughs> so you have a sport that lasts, it feels like, for about three days. <laughs> and there's about three seconds of that sport where somebody actually uses their foot to kick the ball and you call it football. <laughs> Only in America. Gotta love you. 
<laughs> I love you. You're like, oh, we'll rename this sport from England and we will call our sport football and we'll call yours soccer, even though we don't use our feet at all in this sport. <laughs> Teasing. Winning friends and influencing people as I go, right? Like you, have this, you have this sport that you call football. There's a guy in that, his name is Tim Tebow. When he throws the ball to the wide receiver and he scores the touchdown, Tim Tebow might do something like this. And what he's saying in that moment is, God, you gave me the power and the skill and the ability to do my job well today. And today I did it well. And I want to recognize that your glory is manifest in that moment. In Europe, we have soccer. We have players that if they head the ball or kick the ball in the goal, what they'll do is they'll run across and they'll take off their top and it will reveal perfectly formed abs. <laughs> and some of them may take off their top and underneath it, they'll have another top that'll say something about Jesus. Jesus is life or Jesus safe. There's a guy in the U.S. who... Uh, his name is Kaka or Kaka, Kaka, right? And he does that and he has this thing on it and, and he'll run and he'll just do this and he's pointing up to the heavens to say, God, my job today, you were involved in it. You helped me do my job well. And what I did today is for your glory and for your honor. I lived an empowered life in this moment. Now try that if you're a dentist. <laughs> Imagine you're a dentist, you've got the patient in the chair, and you've just drilled the perfect hole in the tooth. What I want you to do is, is just remove the drill and then run around <laughs> and just point it up because your dentistry is filled with the beauty and the glory of God. What you do in your ordinary life, God loves it and is pleased with it. Well, let's say you're not a dentist, let's say you're an accountant. Let's say on Wednesday, you nail the spreadsheet. It's like your happiest moment in life. The numbers are all aligned. And let's say, let's say you just push yourself away from your desk and as a dentist, you may want, as an accountant, you may want to do this slowly and just back away from the desk and then take the spreadsheet and you probably don't have perfectly formed apps, so just hold it up. <laughs> And when you get back to your desk 20 minutes later, just be aware that what you do in accountancy is beautiful to the Father. It's our everyday, ordinary life, and we present it before Him as an offering. Paul says, this is your spiritual act of worship. This is your spirit-filled and spirit-fueled act of worship. What you do in that moment is living an empowered life. It's an empowered life life. Because God's goal for your life is not that you become a believer and help out the local church. God's goal for your life is that you come alive in His presence and begin bringing life to every environment you enter. Starting with the place where you spend most of your time. Starting with the workplace. And so Paul says, I want you to see that this kingdom is spilling out everywhere. And he says, but it's going to take something for you to see it. So don't conform, verse 2, don't conform to the pattern of this world. I remember as a young believer coming into church, and it seemed to me that in those days we interpreted this text this way. Uh, stay out of culture. 
The best way not to conform to culture is to avoid it altogether, right? It was, it was almost as though we could in, introduce the kingdom through sin avoidance, and we can't, right? And so as churches, what we did historically is we abandoned culture. We abandoned the film industry and the fashion industry. We abandoned hairdressing and cleaning, and we uh, got these enclaves in our minds and our hearts, and we abandoned culture as a way to stay out of it. The way it was popularly phrased was this, uh, don't cuss, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. And it's as though if you lived that kind of life, you would be clean and clear. And the church in those days was intimidated by culture. We were afraid of culture, and so we abandoned it rather than altering it. We didn't know how to approach it. And then what happened over the years is instead of being intimidated by culture, the church started to get impressed by culture. And we did the craziest thing. I hope this doesn't offend you, but this is what we did. We became a phrase, and we used it in our churches called culturally relevant. And what we were really trying to say to the cultures, we're not squares and we're not nerds. We're really trendy. <laughs> Look, we play your music and we do your thing and all that. And what we were trying to do is to reach culture by becoming like culture. And you can never reach culture by becoming like culture. In order to change culture, you have to have a better future and an alternative story. And so we never, uh, we never change culture by copying culture. In fact, our task has never been to be culturally relevant. The task of the church is to be relevant to the kingdom of God and introduce that kingdom into the heart of culture. Jesus called us to release captives, not to become captives. And in truth, any time we try to be culturally relevant, we're voting for death. Right? Because our culture's already in decline. I am not uh, in my mid-40s, and I've lived the 70s twice. Because <laughs> our culture, in desperate attempts for creativity, keeps looking backwards and brings nostalgia from there. and brings in. Right now, people are living in the 50s for their second time. All these beards. and right? We did that in the 50s. It's like, let's bring back the 50s. Right? We, keep, we keep reaching backwards because we don't know how to look forward to create culture. So we look at what's been. But as believers, it's our task to shape and create culture. Anyway, it's a different talk for a different time. And, and we kind of we worry, you know, how do, how do we begin to do that? And so what, we, what we've done in, in trying to avoid culture, we've just become afraid. So we've either, tried to be, we've either been intimidated by culture or impressed. Intimidation by culture, you'll have seen like this. Preachers would have stood on the stage and they'll have a young man come to the front and uh, maybe John, you would do this for me. Um, and they would say, now which is easier, for him to pull me down or for me to pull him up? You've seen this? That's kind of what they say. And they're really saying, if you come into contact with sinners, they will pull you down. That, that's the idea. But actually, Christ is in me. I can't actually do this, I'm sorry. Right? <laughs> but because Christ is in me, it's easier for me to pull him up. Or the way that we phrase it in culture and churches is like this sometimes. What we do is we have young people and they're just about to leave high school, let's say, uh, and go to university or college. And what we'll say to them is we'll explain all the dangers of college. Right? We'll say, look out for this and be aware of this and this is a temptation. And, and really what we're saying is we don't trust you a bit. <laughs> That's really what we're saying. Right? And then we'll say, and watch out for the philosophy lecture. Right? And we try to, what we're trying to do, the heart is good, we try to make believers who are strong enough to survive culture rather than bold enough to transform culture. And the disciples we're called to make are disciples who are bold enough to transform culture. 
And so what we do at home is this. We say to our young folks when they're finishing school, we say, you have done a brilliant job. You have led your school like Michael. You've led your school beautifully into life, Michael. Great job. And they'll say, Michael, God is now entrusting you with the university. And you're going to go there. You're going to bring life to that campus. And the question is not going to be, will your faith survive your university? The question is going to be, can your university survive your faith? Because what you carry has enough power to change a whole campus. And Michael knows that. Michael remembers the day he stood in his English lesson in a public school. And he's there and he's talking about friendship. And he thinks to himself, I should really tell them about my best friend. And there he is making this presentation in class. And he begins to say, hey, the best friend that I have is Jesus. He begins to talk about Jesus. And so after he's done that for a little while, he thinks, what would they do at church? And he realizes at church, we would say, if you want our best friend to become your best friend, just raise your hand. So here he is in English at school with his peers. And he just says, hey, if any of you would like to know my best friend, Jesus, is your best friend today, why don't you just raise your hand and six hands go up. This is English in school. Right? Six hands go up. And Michael thinks, oh, they probably didn't get it. So he does it a second time. And 11 hands go up, including the teacher. Right? Well, you don't, you don't say to people like, Michael, watch your cell at uni. <laughs> it's like, Michael, you're going to transform that university. Yeah. Oh, you don't seem convinced. I'm going to push you on it for 60 seconds. I have so much to tell you. Uh, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You either believe that to your toes or you don't. But when you believe it to your toes, you walk into environments and you expect what you're carrying to spill on that. And that includes, that includes the workplace. Okay, so we did that in intimidation. In impressing the culture, we brought it in, as I mentioned. And we did things, we did crazy things like our inner services. And if you do that, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, I'm just a little confused how, if God is an amazing artist, why do we keep painting doves and lions? Like, has he got no other creativity? Is, and does he only ever paint himself and the symbols? If God, if God has called you to art, then for God's sake, and I mean that, for God's sake, be an artist. Don't hide it away in the church. Take your art to Long Beach. It's a flourishing artistic community. And put on the best artistic exhibition that this community has seen. Or go down to Laguna Beach and do something there. But let your art be seen so that a watching world can wonder at the story and the beauty and the majesty of God revealed through your art. Take it out of the church and into the culture. Or if it's in dance, the girl in her church in Northern Ireland, she came to me one time, she said, God has made me to dance. And what she was really saying is, can I dance on the stage during the worship? And I was like, I just said to her, we don't do that here. And she looked at me like I was a controlling leader. Hello, controlling leader, trying to stop my creativity. And I said, hey, has God really called you to dance? And she says, he has. And I said, well, why don't you open a dance school in town? Eventually, that's what she did. And today, she has like this huge waiting list for her dance skill. Her business is flourishing because she took something that she wanted to do in a 12-foot stage, and she took it to the community. And God is releasing the church in their everyday ordinary into the world. We don't have to settle for cultural relevance. We're changing from the sacred-secular divide to sacred-secular design. 
where what we do every day in our workspaces makes a difference. And in order for that to happen, we've got to make some changes in the church. You know, for too long, what happens in churches is this. You have a young man, and it usually is a young man, and he's going to seminary, um, like a Bible school thing. He's going there, and as he's setting off, the church will say, this is Jeff, and he's going to seminary. We want to pray for Jeff. We believe this is a formative time in his life. We believe God's going to use this time in his life, and we want to pray. And if you want to give to Jeff and help him with his Bible studies, you can give here. And so that's what the church does. Meanwhile, Sally's sitting in church, and Sally's going to study journalism at university or college. And uh, she's sitting there. And then at Christmas time, they both get back from their first semester at college. And the church might say to Jeff, Jeff, come and tell us how your experience has been. Tell us about what God's been doing in you. Would you even pray? Or they might even say, would you come and preach? We want to see how it's going as you study the Bible. And the subtle message to Sally is this. That your journalism degree doesn't matter at all to God. That God is more interested in the text that was written 2,000 years ago than he is on the news that you write every day. And if you're doing something religious with your time, God is all over it and the church is all over it. But if you're doing something that is changing culture, God isn't interested. And I want to tell you today, friends, those days are gone. These are the days, these are the days when we... I don't have time, you're very kind, but I don't have time. These, <laughs> these are the days when we ordain the ordinary. These are the days when we don't just call pastors and leaders and elders and deacons to the front, but we call lawyers and hairdressers and engineers and cleaners and artists and sculptors and poets and dancers and filmmakers and creative people. And we say, God has ordained what you do for a living. God breathes on what you do for a living. The Holy Spirit longs to fill what you do for a living and the, the kingdom does not not belong to the experts. It belongs to everyone, everywhere, every day, inscribing a story of hope, healing, and honor into every sphere of culture. And so today, we release and commission you to take all authority and to immerse the nations in the pattern of Jesus so that they come into prevailing hope. And as you clean that house today, understand that as you clean, God in heaven loves how you clean. We're ordaining people in their everyday ordinary lives. And at home, uh, we just began to do that. We began to declare that in filmmaking. Now, we live in a very beautiful, or did live in a very beautiful part of Northern Ireland, but it is a cultural backwater, not a cultural epicenter. We began to say, well, we're going to be ordaining filmmakers, so we need to pray in a film industry for them to work in. And so we just began to say, I began to speak to our church and say, hey, we're going to begin to see the film industry are going to begin to come to our community. And it just seemed daft. Just seemed that. For a couple of years, I would do that. And then uh, the, the film industry came to a nearby community and they made a movie called Dracula. I'm not going to lie, it wasn't the music movie that I'd hoped for, right? That wasn't the one I wanted. But hey, we were off and running. And I knew that those people making the movie would come into our town. If they come anywhere near our town, our kids were going to get them. They'd be praying for them, healing them, all sorts of stuff. So I, I was happy with that. Went on for a little while, and then uh, they made a TV program that's the most downloaded TV program in history, and they made it just outside our community. It's called Game of Thrones. So they made that in our area. And we were happy. God had brought a place now where filmmakers could engage. And uh, we just began to, to pray more on that, but the problem was it was outside our community. And then two years ago, our local council changed the boundaries of our community 
And they actually named it after a church. So cool. Talk about rewriting the story of your city. They named it after a church. And then in redesigning the boundaries, they brought Game of Thrones into our boundaries. So in our community, now is the most downloaded TV program. Isn't it kind? <laughs> and it never existed there until we began to work with culture. It's not my favorite way we transform culture. Favorite way we do it at home. I've got four minutes. It's an education. It's an education. Uh, you know, my confession is this. We used to go into schools, places like this. This is a school. Kids would sit in seats like this. I'd tell them about Jesus. They would come to faith. It was beautiful. Uh, but I remember one day coming home. It was a Friday, and uh, I was feeling kind of pleased. 28 kids had given their life to Christ. It seemed like a good day. I thought God would be pleased. I'm on my way home, and I feel like the Holy Spirit speak to me, and he says, Son, you don't care about the school at all. All you care about are souls. He said, but I care about the school. I put that school, the dream of that school, in the heart of one of my servants. And that school matters to me. And it just changed my worldview. So we began to look at ways of how do we partner with schools. And uh, what we did is we, have a, uh, we had a group of people called interns. Intern, uh, the Greek word for that is prisoners. <laughs> And we, we just say, hey, we want you to show up in the school and serve breakfast to the kids. That's what we want you to do. We don't want you to uh, tell them about Jesus. Just give them breakfast. And so they started to do that. And we began to build relationship of trust with the school. And over a period of time, the school said, hey, would some of this, the guys, would they go out in the playground and just stand there so that if any kid is being bullied or victimized, they can come and your, your uh, guys will operate like playground monitors. And we said, sure, we'd love to do that. So we began doing that. It's all public skills. We began doing that. And then he said, hey, would you mind coming into the classrooms and, and helping kids who are struggling a little academically and help their grades come up? And we said, yeah, we'd love to do that. And all the while, trust was building. Eventually, he said, would you come and teach math and science? We're like, yes, we'd love to do that. And then one school became, as it is today, 33 schools. And God just kept opening up and opening up. And now we're in schools and we're actually writing the curriculum for schools and the government are paying us money to do that. Right? And I'm so glad we didn't settle for a few souls. Right? We still see hundreds. We saw, you won't believe this, but I'll tell you, uh, two years ago we had a whole school stand to receive Christ. The whole school. Right? The whole school. So we still see all that. That's still out there. But our greatest joy is that we get to see the skill transformed. And all that sounds great, but do you know who the best people are at working in skills? Kingdom ninjas. They're called teachers. <laughs> and teachers are kingdom ninjas. Every day they're transforming generations through education. They're brilliant people, extraordinarily gifted, who hold the tension of a very stressful job and balance that wonderfully well. And they go in there every day and they release the kingdom. We partner with them to do that. And I want to encourage you. I know you would never do this here. Um, but you know, if you're, ever, if you're ever going to applaud people who work in your kids' ministry here, if you ever say, hey, if you work at the garden children's ministry, would you stand and applaud them? For every one time you do that, applaud the people who work in education at least 10 times. Otherwise, the subtle message, the subtle message we send is this. What you do for one hour in a 
in a room in a church on a Sunday of religious instruction, that one hour of religious instruction is more important than the 40 hours that teachers invest transforming a generation. And we want to communicate to them that actually this is where the real work of the kingdom happens. It happens outside, on our streets, ordinary people doing ordinary jobs witnessing the kingdom come. I'm so glad at home we didn't settle for souls because our family business is transforming everything. It's transforming everything. It's transforming business. Hey, I think I'm done. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. Thank you.